0: Welcome to Night School, taking a stab at the Middle
1: Ages. A podcast devoted to medieval history and culture, and the occasional bad pun.
0: I'm Becca, bringing you everything related to medieval religion and church history.
1: And I'm Claire, talking about medieval literature and history.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Holly Dugan about late medieval and early modern scents and smells, Dr. Holly Dugan is Associate Professor of English at the George Washington University. She is the author of The Ephemeral History of Perfume, Scent and Sense in Early Modern England, and co-editor with Lara Farina from West Virginia University of Intimate Senses, a special issue of Post Medieval. She has written numerous articles on the role of smell in early modern literature and culture. She is currently working on Shakespeare and the Senses, a book that explores the sensory realms of early modern English theaters. So thank you so much, Dr. Dugan, for joining us today. Uh, We're really excited to have you on the show. I think some of our listeners might have tuned in for our trailer episode when we did the little segment on um, what people thought when they heard the word medieval, and someone said, smelly. (laughs) So we're definitely, (laughs) we think it's going to be like a really fun and interesting episode. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me.
2: Cool.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, Claire, do you want to start us off
1: today? Sure. So I think we can just start off with a more broad, basic question before we get into some other um, key texts and I guess theories of smell maybe. Um, but why is it important to include smells in historical or interdisciplinary studies? And how does it contribute to our archives of the past? And then maybe how would you characterize late medieval, early modern England's language of olfaction?
2: Oh, these are great questions. Yeah, so um, I think, first of all, I just want to say that your friends who you interviewed they gave you those first impressions when thinking about the past. Um, they are generally ones I think we all have and they're really rooted in what I think is what's so fascinating about the senses as a research field um, and particularly as a tool of historical scholarship, which is that it really does get at the heart of what it was like to live in that particular space and time, um, because the senses are always about where the body meets the world, and how we process and encode and talk about those experiences to others, and how we talk about the smells of the past um, as though it were so much stinkier and um, foul than it might seem to be in the present. I think reveals a lot more about who we are and where we are right now in our position in the world than it necessarily does about the past. Um, And not surprisingly, um, some of the sources from that time period also talk about the past in much the same ways. And so for me, I think that that's where um, the research inquiry begins. What was it like? to experience medieval London, for example, or other smellscapes um, in the medieval past. Who was in them? What, What was that environment like? And how, most importantly, did those people process that experience and make meaning of it, both in highly constructed ways through literary representation. And then I think what we're mostly interested in as well is in that visceral experience of life in the past. So for me, it really is a unique um, research inquiry. And the other piece of it I think that matters to me is that it really is something that is accessible um, to to almost everyone. when you start talking about historical scholarship, it can very quickly seem as though it is a highly specialized topic of inquiry. But we all encountered the world through our senses, and so being able to talk about it in this way helps us, I think, bridge that gap.
0: Definitely. And I think you've kind of alluded um, in that intro to how we think of smells of the past, how that kind of reveals things about us today. Um, And you've also written about the issue of um, how the history of the use of bodily smells can play a role in shaping prejudices. Um, so we were wondering if you could share some of those examples from the Middle Ages um, and kind of, you know, how it can help us understand the marginalization of certain groups and races, and maybe what are some of the issues with you know the teleological arguments where you know smell was more important in the past and things like that.
2: Yes, I think there's um, a lot here to unpack. I mean, I want to begin with the language that we use to describe sensory experiences. We often think of um, our senses in a kind of hierarchy, that there are certain sensory modes that are predominant in particular historical moments, vision with modernity, for example, and not surprisingly smell with the medieval past, right? Like we set up a sense that we have progressed towards um, sensory modes that are hooked into large-scale stories and narratives about progress. Um, And that is hinged to exactly the question that you're asking about how smell and the senses begins to bolster racist ideologies um, that are um, long-standing, that extend all the way back to the pre-modern past, and that are continuing to shape our lived experiences in the contemporary moment. And so one of the things that I want to emphasize is that when we switch our sensory modes um, and we start thinking about the senses and the words that we use to code meaning in our everyday life, we're used to talking about a category like racial identity or gender identity um, through visual markers. And when we start to shift those sensory modes, what we start to see is that that phenomenon that seemed very stable, that we knew what racial difference is and how it looks, um, is different when we engage with other senses. And what we'll find, I think, again and again and again in the medieval past, but in other historical moments as well, is that the senses are really contested grounds. Um, And a lot of that has to do with both the paradoxes of biology, how our brains um, encode visceral experience and process it as memory and then also the cultural and social and semantic meanings um, that position some people as smelling better and then also as subjects of smell those who are engaging with the world around them and some people in some bodies as objects of smell and these are really profoundly disturbing histories of class, of animality, of race um, and of of dehumanization at the basest um, and starkest ways. And so for me, I think my research is always about trying to unpack those two processes at once. I see a historical source and I understand what's being presented to me as a, a record of visceral experience, but also recognizing that any kind of um, subject position like that is speaking through the habits and cultures of their time period um, that have shaped and influenced them to pay attention to some pieces of the sensory world and ignore others. And smell tends to be one that hovers just underneath cognizant recognition. And for that reason, I think it becomes really interesting as a historical source.
1: Yeah, I think it is really important to include perceptions and I guess, opinions of smell in conversations about like racialized discourse in the Middle Ages too. That's something that I'm um, like really interested in. Um, so yeah, that's a great point.
2: I don't mean to interrupt, but one other thing to note is that you know drawing on social geography and, and, and practitioners who are thinking about this from, from social sciences and understanding the science of smell and how it connects to our contemporary geographies of difference. One thing that we know now is that Novelty itself, when you first encounter a smell, we tend to categorize it as unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just part of the processing that happens. And, and once you've encountered it again, and your brain can recognize it and store it and understand and, and place it, then not surprisingly that's seen and coded as pleasant. And so in some ways, the mechanism of difference and of novelty and of exchange um, is built into the sensory processing that we have. And of course, none of that is um, uncoded by sociality. Like social cues are always telling us um, how to frame and interpret that data as well. And so it becomes this really interesting cultural moment because it, it's lived experience. My, I have experienced this directly as um as, as challenging, as provoking, or as, as knowledge that is um, framing how I move through the world. Um, and that can have radical implications for how we encounter um, others in our present moment and then also how people in the past did as well.
1: Right. That's really interesting. And I think it's a good transition into my next question. So based on what Rebecca and I read um, in preparation for this episode, uh, we read that in the Middle Ages, there was a lot of controversy over the ways in which smells were transmitted. So could you tell us a little bit about this controversy and about some of the leading ideas or theories about transmission? Yes, I mean, the history of medicine is one that is really fascinating. And, um,
2: and, it, and smell is really rooted at the um, central questions of existentialism, I think, of who we are and how we understand the world, philosophers. Um, from the ancient moment onward, have lots to say about this. Um, Although even within these systems, uh, smell is usually denigrated (laughs) and seen as, again, linked to animality, the sort of brute and um, embodied aspects of human experience, rather than sort of the sublime moments of consciousness. And what we see emerging from the classical moment onwards is a, a profound debate between two really influential thinkers, Plato and Aristotle, about what the nature of smell is. And this is something that medieval, mostly theologians, but also historians and, you know of, of, of their time period as well, thinking through medicine and um, science, were trying to figure out, what is smell? Is it a direct encounter with matter? Or is it somehow connected to an unseen medium that transmits? Um, the, the sort of essence of the matter to the perceiving subject. Um, and so with, for Aristotle, it was more like a direct encounter, something like taste, um, where you are physically um, in contact with smell. And for Plato, it was much more complicated. Plato is someone whose theories of smell kind of seem like ours, that he sort of posited. If we, if we change his language and we insert molecule, um, into his theory of smell, it seems as though it's closest to what our modern understandings are. Um, and But what I will notice about this controversy is that it is highly um, contained to the upper echelons of medieval society. That is, and, and much like today, I just want to emphasize that we have scientific understandings of smell that may or may not directly influence how we Um, understand that sensory mechanism for ourselves. And so it's both really interesting from a philosophical point of view of what medieval um, thinkers and scholars were trying to wrestle with um, both in these theories from the past and then also um, expand upon it in their particular moment in time and then how that knowledge was connected to wider cultural discussions about religion, about the presence of God, about divinity, about religious difference, about gender, about sexuality, about, as we've already said, confronting folks who look different than we do, act different than we do, eat differently than we do. Um, and that we is always in scare quotes, right? Depending on who the perspective is from the source that you're dealing with. But it is almost always a we versus a them, a subject versus an object to be encountered. And that, I think, is where the highest echelons of thinking about the mechanisms of smell start to root into and connect to these broader widespread cultural issues about how people made sense of their world in the past.
0: Yeah, I guess Claire and I were also interested in how everyday folk thought of smell, like you're saying, perhaps these perspectives were more, you know, theologians. So we were wondering, you know, how did people think of smell in connection to disease? And I guess connecting back to, you know, our ongoing theme of perceiving the Middle Ages as more smelly than, say, like after the Enlightenment when there's more sanitation practices and things like that. Were these things also present in the Middle Ages? And if so, what did that look like?
2: Yes, of course. And I want to put pressure on our notion of the the the, the idea that we're more sanitary than the people of the past. Um, and because I feel like that sometimes suggests um, a, a kind of idealized norm about who we are and where we are in the world and what those um, systems look like. And so of course, you know, our our base assumption is that they smelled badly in the past, but that in some ways reproduces that troubling paradigm that we have already said that there's a we and a them. And and now it's just historical distance um, that othering people of the past. That's Mark Jenner's really brilliant article um, that pointed that out. And I think it's an important point to still make. Um, But what I find really fascinating is that just like today. We use smell um, to, to navigate our everyday world. And, then, and again, it's about health. It's about diet and culture, like food culture. It is about um, you know, religious experience. It's about desire. It's about gender presentation. All of these aspects of sensory meaning-making hook into who we are and how we move through the world. And that was true in the past as well. And what I find really fascinating, what's really surprising to me, um, when we put down an expectation of what we'll find in those historical sources is how rich and evocative the language of Smell is in medieval sources, how many different times it comes up as an important register for meaning. Um, I know you've had an episode about Marjorie Kemp But the references in that source material around smell are really fascinating. They connect to her experience of her body, her experience of motherhood, and her experience, you know, that really weird aspect of that text her visceral experience of God in a way that, you know, would have troubled some of her readers um, and also would have resonated with them. And you can find this in other historical sources as well, that smell really is a domain and a, a, a way of talking about meaning that really cuts through almost every important vector of identity that we think of in the past. And so for me, you know, that's where it becomes really interesting and also challenging as a historical project how then do you historicize something that was so fundamentally central to everyday life and yet fades from view uh, and cannot easily um, be described or qualified um, in the ways that we usually approach historical sources? So it's both a challenge and I think um, an opportunity. And so for me, I find the turning to literary representations works incredibly well because it's highly, highly artificial. That is what usually makes literary sources kind of suspect as historical documents is that they're generic, that they're comporting to aesthetic norms, that they're trying very hard to make a poetic or an aesthetic effect rather than, say, capturing um, a sort of visceral experience. And yet, at the same time, they're pointing to uh, structures of thought um, that resonate in 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 really meaningful ways. And so. I like those everyday um, arts of the people. I love plays for this reason. I love medieval, thinking about medieval plays and performance, partly because what you see are everyday people participating in that highly constructed representational project of making art. I am there for that. I love when um, who we think of as artists are expanded. And so for me, medieval plays really are one of those, those moments.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And before we move on to talking about plays, I just had a thought that it just hit me right now that, I mean, if I were studying our time period, like 2020 right now, but like hundreds of years later, I wouldn't exactly, I would probably classify 2020 as a smelly year, you know? I mean, (laughs) we're in the middle of a pandemic. There, we're not really following a lot of public health recommendations. So it is just interesting to compare yeah. we're doing t- a lot more home health care um, exactly. we're
2: definitely changing our norms in terms of you know bodily care and um, the other thing that I would say is rather than thinking about a sensory shift between the medieval past and the present, I mean there certainly are profound changes in how we live um, from those two moments in time. Um, but I think you know how they experience pandemics as well also involved this, what you just isolated, this notion of a small scale sensory shift um, where we become heightened and aware of these unthinking habits of everyday life that sort of we just sort of do unknowingly um, because we're on autopilot. In a moment like 2020 and in other moments in the past, we become really aware of those unthinking
1: actions and they change um, with that observation. Right, and so moving on to what you were just talking about, about plays, you write about the role of sense in constructing fantasies about gender and desire in late medieval and early, early modern plays. So we were wondering in the text Digby's Mary Magdalene, did that serve as a moral compass in the play? I love that
2: play. I mean, first of all, to your listeners out there, if you have not encountered it, you should definitely try. I will caveat that it is known for being long. It's like 17 scene changes, 2,200 lines. It is a monster of a play. And I think it speaks to how fascinating Mary Magdalene is as a medieval figure, as a saint. Um, She's hooking into these questions um, about vectors of identity. And particularly in terms of gender and race and sexuality, all of that is there in her history as a saint. We have just, I think, passed um, her feast day, which is when that play would have been celebrated and performed, and it's a really interesting one. Partly because what the play tries to do is perform both smell in dangerous ways, that is, linked up with luxury, linked up with sexuality, representations of women's sexuality in that play are really interesting, they do not, necessarily, um, I, I, I find that they're really, they're fascinating in the sense that they seem to be arguing for a lesbian desire. She is just, um, before her reformation, she's really um, just defined by sin in every kind of access that the medieval world defined sin. And at the same time, she's reconfigured through her penitence and her relationship with Jesus into a divine figure and for me smell is one of the ways in which the play that Digby mary magdalene stages that for its audience members that is it stages both the illicit pleasures of olfaction and then also um, the divine and sublime pleasures of olfaction and that to me is really interesting because it's again right there smell is always a hinge sense and a kind of can i can waft either way um, quite easily really putting pressure on um, the thinking and most importantly the perceiving subject um, making sure that they too are learning these pedagogical approaches between what is appropriate um, pleasure in olfactory pleasure and what is dangerous olfactory pleasure and not surprisingly that maps almost immediately onto exotic ingredients of perfume versus native ones um, within an English landscape, Um, and that also connects to and amplifies how it might have been participating in the work of racial formation in the medieval period, Um, but not necessarily through visual markers, instead through olfactory ones.
0: I guess continuing with this theme of Smells of the divine. Um, You've also written about the Corpus Christi cycle plays. Um, So we were wondering if you could just give us a few examples of religious plays symbolizing religious meanings and things like that.
2: Yes, I think one of the other pieces to really um, think about with the medieval moment in time is labor, the smell of labor and class. And smells are, of course, associated with those artisan trades that were part and parcel with how we think about the cycle plays and what they're celebrating and why they were so important to medieval cities um, and participants. And what I find really fascinating um, in the stagecraft of these plays is that smells of all kinds were seen as valuable, even those that within any other kind of moment in time are seen as debased or troubling, or even um, dangerous from a public health point of view, that is the smells associated with say, leather tanning. Um, that, you know, normally you'll see regulations, you know, when Edward III goes to York, um, there's a clearing out of those industries in order to sanitize the city for the presence of the king in the 14th century. Um, And he describes the city in olfactory ways. And so we often see these moments of really trying to make a civic space palatable for certain members of society, and that includes removing others associated with these industries and these labor trades but what's so interesting about the cycle plays is that in that moment those very same industries can be put to service in creating a rich smellscape that helps to amplify the pedagogical purpose of those plays which is to showcase biblical history in real time which is such a weird project in and of itself Um, and really again everyone go take a medieval drama course i promise you you will be surprised by the jokes that you find in these plays. It is just not quite what you always expect when we imagine what a medieval religious play would be like. And one of those moments is really using, say, the tanners to dramatize the harrowing of hell, um, the fall of angels. We see and um, one of my former colleagues, Jonathan Gil Harris calls it medieval product placement um, in the most interesting ways, that is, what we see are these industries signing up for and associating with these moments in biblical history that are not necessarily what we would imagine positive associations, right? Why would you want to be associated with the smell of hell? And yet we find many, many industries being willing to take that on and really seeing this a uh, rich understanding that odors are in and of themselves neither good nor bad. It is really the meanings we ascribe to that. And I think once, even now, once we drop into the specifics, when we really start hooking into what are the smells that we love and why, right? Of course, there's those high notes of perfumery that, you know, jasmine, rose, all these amazing botanical ingredients that are pleasurable, but there's also some weird ones, the smell of tennis balls, mothballs, gasoline, right? Again, they're neither good nor bad, rather they're hooked into how and where we were when we first encountered them and the meanings we ascribed to that. And that's the project I think of where the visceral meets the social and really interesting. And so I think those plays are one of those moments where we can see that working through um, and, and a willingness to use whatever tool you have in the creation of art, a divinely inspired one perhaps, but they were also pretty riotous feast days as well. So I'm not sure they're always there for that biblical pedagogy. I think they might be there as well for the kind of artistic endeavor why all of us show up for theater, right? That it's, it's interesting and fun to watch and to smell and to engage with those imaginary
1: worlds. Right, and to kind of talk about another scenario that blends the vis- visceral and the social, what role did sense play in late medieval royal pageants?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I find that's one of the things that was really surprising to me in some of the source materials is that, you know, we tend to imagine stagecraft of the past um, devoid of pyrotechnics and um, some of the the fancier, you know, sort of stagecraft that we see now in modern theaters. Um, But what I found in the past is that they really did use a whole host um, of techniques in order to create an immersive world. Um, including showering rain, uh, rose water onto the crowds as a kind of way to, I mean, it was a twofold approach. In some ways it was medieval crowd control, right? you have, um, again, this sort of sense of who is important and who is deemed as a threat um, to some. So if you have an aristocratic or um, a king or a queen moving through civic space, which of course you want to do in order to perform royal power, um, you also need to make sure that that space is one in which that person can travel through safely. And one of the ways they did this was <laughs> perfuming the crowd. And I know how I feel when someone comes up and sprays me unwanted um, <laughs> in a department store with a sample of perfume. It's an incredibly aggressive act um, to perhaps you know to have that sort of put upon you and to have your own sensory. Um, embodiment changed and, and we see that in some of these records that they would rain what rose water on the crowds they would throw sweetbreads into into the crowds as well as a kind of way of dealing with that sort of charged environment um, that we can see in any kind of civic pr- procession you know i uh, live just outside of and teach in washington dc and we see a whole lot of civic processions um and and national processions in our space and it's not unlike some of the strategies that are used as well, and sort of in these moments of performance, of public performance.
0: Yeah, and I think it's always important to, you know, make those modern-day connections when we can. We wanted to end on a more informal, silly question. Um, So we were wondering if you had to choose a perfume for yourself from late medieval or early modern period, which would it
2: be, and why? Uh, Well, so I have, can I give a positive and a negative?
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) So the positive one, I am a scholar of the Renaissance, and so for me, it's roses. I just find the importation of Damascus rose into England in the early 16th century to be one of those tremendous moments, and I've written about this. I've talked about how the Tudors used that, the Tudor rose, and they used that amazing technology to solidify their royal power Um, but i am just a rose hound i think it's associated with helping my grandmother in her gardens when i was young as well as her what we might call old lady perfumes (laughs) she had a heavy rose perfume that she wore and i just um, am transported when i encounter that and of course in the renaissance they would have had um you know the real deal the most um amazing of course if you're at the higher estuaries, they had Um, you know, not synthetics. They had um, absolutes. And so that would be tremendous to me um, as a lover of rose perfumes. But I think um, in some ways my interest in perfume is um, born of a negative association growing up, which was I was raised um, in a family that practiced um, in the Catholic faith. And so I have very strong childhood visceral negative reactions to incense. Um, And I have a chapter in my book on incense, um, which my parents thought was very funny when they read it, that I became so interested in this because I was so um, vocal about not liking it when I was younger. And I find um, that scent still to this day to really be evocative. And I think for me, it's really grounded in how powerful smell can be. Sometimes it's those negative scents um, that really show us how smell can fill a room and really make you feel unwelcome if you are not um, experiencing it in, in pleasant ways. And so some of this is coming from <laughs> the smells I'd like to avoid in medieval culture. But of course, that would have been one of the most pleasant ones um, that was deployed in the medieval liturgy very strategically in order to signify um, the physical presence of god in in those cathedral spaces and anybody who's been around incense knows how powerful it can be it can really fill those huge cathedral spaces and so yes <laughs> i also am a little bit interested there's really good work on i think it's ruth karis who talks about women sex workers in the medieval past and she notes that they were often associated with trades particularly washerwomen, and we see this again and again and again, that there's all these kinds of gender stereotypes about um, labor, female labor, and the scents associated with it. The scent that is, I think, for us, usually associated with men and with um, natural cleanliness is lavender. Um, But in the medieval past, that would have been a very, one of those scents that might have been been used in the Digby Mary Magdalene to sort of signify dangerous women um, and their presence. Um, in those spaces and so I feel whenever I encounter lavender even now I have um, a sort of query about those women of the past um, who worked and were um, just constructed in such horrifically misogynist ways.
1: That's all we have time for but thank you so much again Dr. Dugan for joining us. Um, For our listeners make sure you tune in next week as we talk with Dr. Hannah Riley about medieval manuscript production.